Welcome to the Rockin' Life podcast, Rockin' Life After Divorce. And today we have Daniel Harold with us today. How are you doing today? Good, Per. How are you doing? It's good to see you again. Yeah, I'm doing real well. And it's so much fun to interview people and being like a detective in the podcast. So, And uh, I got to know you recently through one of the Instagram posts I saw. And uh, you're a divorced dad of three girls. You've been divorced a few years, and uh, you're also a co-creator of the Divorced Over 40 community. And it's a community for people that are, uh, you know, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s that have gone through divorce and maybe struggling and to build them up. And uh, that is so awesome. You're giving back to the community. That's so awesome. And uh, this podcast, the Rockin' Life podcast, is there to help people, to hear people's stories that have struggled through divorce and learn something from it, and to help people bring hope to this difficult situation. Like, divorce for me was one of the most difficult things in my whole life. When you hear somebody else's story, it can bring light in the end of the tunnel to bring them forward. And you had a little story to share about dating or something. What was that? Yes, and first of all, pair. What you said, just to echo, I totally agree. The stories are what inspire people and provide people with hope, particularly if people have come out on the other side and they have something positive to say about their life. And so I'm a big advocate, just like I know you are, of trying to tell as many of those stories as possible because divorce sucks and it's hard and it's just a better way to get to navigate through it. But, you know, what I'm excited to talk about a little bit and it references back to dating is I feel like I've figured out the secret recipe in dating and everybody gets so disenfranchised with the dating process, particularly when you're in your forties and over getting on the dating apps and going through all the crap that everybody talks about. We have all heard about it, but I think I've kind of figured out the secret recipe and I'm excited to share that with you. Yeah. And that's actually one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit later on in this podcast. And I know a lot of listeners are curious to hear a little bit about that. But first, I just wanted to hear a little bit about your story. Why did it end up in divorce? I dated my ex-wife the summer after I graduated from high school. So I was 19 years old. We both went to separate colleges and we dated throughout the four years that we attended college in a long distance type relationship. I was driving up to where she was in college and vice versa. And we dated for about four years and then we got married just like many people do in kind of the Midwest. And the culture is that you get married early and you have kids early. And I would fit into that mold and I got married in 1996. So I was 22 years old, getting married, had my first job and we had kids within two years. So by 24, 25, had our first child and I had three kids before I turned 30. So you talk about just jumping right into life and all the busyness of parenting and the stress of parenting. And I was married for a total of 22 years. So my kids were, you know, I had one in college, I had two still in high school. And like many stories, it was just a slow erosion of the marriage, of the physical, the emotional intimacy that we all have when we start. And we were kind of like, you know, just kind of split like that, where we just started to feel like we were more roommates together, co-parenting than we were lovers and partners. And, you know, I think a lot of marriages, the couples choose to 
get divorced after the kids are out of school, when they become empty nesters, you see that a lot, right? In our culture. Yeah. And we hit a couple of stress points. It was the hair that broke the camel's back, as the saying goes, that we just were so unhappy, both of us, that we knew that we needed to make the decision at the time, which was two and a half years ago versus wait until the kids were out. So I've been divorced for two and a half years. I had a very amicable divorce process with my ex-wife. We're not best friends, but we co-parent very well. We communicate very well. We get along very well. We talk regularly. I felt like we did it right. We cared about how the kids went through the process and how they were going to handle it. And so that was really important and still continues to be important to us about how we treat each other because we wanted that to be a model for our kids. So that's kind of my divorce story. Yeah, I know there are a lot of struggles in divorce. And how did you go about to make this happen so it's amicable? Because I hear so many people, including myself, have had so much strife. And did you do it in a way that it would be benefit to you and your ex-wife? It's a good question. Number one was just my sensitivity to my three girls. And having daughters is a little bit different from guys in terms of the emotional impact that a divorce can often have. That's not to say that sons don't go through the trauma and the stress, they do. There was a lot of shame and there was a lot of guilt and failing in a marriage that I think a lot of guys have, where I felt that I was a failure. After 22 years, my parents you know, were celebrating, were in excess of 50 years of marriage and my in-laws were in close to hitting their 50 year mark. I kind of felt like we were the black sheep and I was the one that had failed. And it was almost like a way to make sure, well, I failed, but I want to fail right, so to speak. It was perception for me. And so those were the drivers. And let me tell you, look, divorces, whether it's incredibly toxic or whether it's smooth sailing is still hard. You can't avoid the emotions that you go through. You're going to go through all of them. And we went through all of them. It was tough. Even though we got along fairly well, I think that I avoided a lot of strife and a lot of stress. Even today, two and a half years later, handling it in the way and give her credit too. She handled it in the same way that I did. Now, I know when you go through a divorce, if you have two different lawyers and there's all about them winning, a lot of times that creates even more strife and more difficulty. And a lot of people use mediators instead, or even a collaborative divorce where you're actually working together to get the best situation for the whole family, not just for the individual persons. Did you have lawyers or how did you work through the details? It's a great question. So I remember getting a call from my ex-wife while we were separated. We were, I'd moved out. She had gone on a walk with some of her girlfriends and all of her girlfriends, they knew about the situation and they were encouraging her to lawyer up, find the best lawyer first, because he's going to find it. He's going to screw you. And those were the words that she was hearing in her ear. And we had a pretty good relationship at the time in terms of communication. And she was really stressed out that she was going to be taken advantage of and communicated that to me in a very open and raw way. And my ex-wife, to her credit, was a stay-at-home mom for the better part of the 22 years. And so she provided that support to the family to enable me to accelerate in my career. Yeah. So you have to look through her lens and say, oh my gosh, I have to restart a career that I've put on this shelf for 22 years. And you can't just jump into the, the lifestyle of the income that, that you were in before 
starting over. And so I was sympathetic to that. Again, you already saw the kind of the feelings uh, and the approach that I take. And I said to her, why don't I come over and let's sit down. Let's work on a budget of what you think you're going to need. Let's work on through the assets and let's get it settled. And I came over on a Sunday night and we spent two hours working through that. We agreed on everything without question and hired one attorney. The attorney can't represent both parties, at least in the state of Oklahoma. But we sat down with the attorney and we basically handed it over and said, this is what we want to do, draw it out. And that was it. Uh, It's amazing. Further discussion. It's interesting because I look back two and a half years later, could I have fought for a lot more? Absolutely. I could have gotten the best deal in the world, but I felt like we handled it in the right way. I felt I left a legacy for my kids. My conscience is clear. I feel like I handled this better than most. And she handled it better than most. Was it the very best deal for us? No, but it was a compromise. And so that's how we handled it. And even my parents at the time, my brother, who are all attorneys, by the way, were like, you're stupid. You need to make sure that you're represented well. Why are you doing this? And I said, because I feel right about it. And I still do two and a half years later. That's such an awesome story. I love to hear that because it's an example and role model for people initiating a divorce. Because if you get two lawyers and they start fighting for each other, you're going to end up a lot of times in this war between, and you're going to spend so much money on lawyers and fees, et cetera, and it never ends. And to start from the beginning and working together, that's why if that's possible to do it that way or just get one mediator to help you out and then draw up the papers with a lawyer. And if that's not possible, collaborative divorce is another way to do it, which I think is a much, much healthier way than using two separate lawyers. So kudos to you. You know, Uh, I think what you learn and what I learned just with retrospect is all these things that a lot of people battle for, that's all they are. There are material things and they really don't mean a whole lot. We did the big house and we did the big overhead. We did the keeping up with the Joneses and it destroyed our marriage. And I came out of it with a whole new perspective on what I wanted in my life. And so knowing that I didn't need a lot of that stuff. I left the house with just the clothes in my closet. I didn't need to fight over the silverware or the couch or the TV. All I wanted was a new beginning. And now I'm sitting in a 800 square foot apartment. I don't need any more space than what I have. I'm happy. This is exactly what I need. I'm all about experiences now and less about material things. So it, it gave me a whole new perspective because it was like, okay, when you get a divorce, you get a reset. This is a reset for you. Are you going to do it right or not? And a lot of times end up going back to their old patterns, their own behaviors, um, some of which are negative. And for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to do this reset. And one of the things that was important to me is that I want to focus on experiences in my life now and family and friendships than I do trying to accumulate things. And so I took that reflection in how I handled the divorce and that I don't need this stuff. And frankly, pair money's replaceable. So if I have to give some of it away, I'll replace it. Maybe not at the same pace that I did when I was young and career driven. But again, if I don't need all those things, then maybe I don't need as much money. So that was my view on the divorce and how to settle some of that stuff. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that because I had a very similar story where it comes to 
keeping up with the Joneses, making sure that your garden looks good, you have a good house, a nice car, and then going to church, showing up, having this perfect marriage when you didn't. And uh, I had to deal with a lot of shame too in the divorce. I was going to church and especially in the end, I felt so much shame about the divorce and I just stopped going to church. And I feel that's sad. The church is the place you should be able to go to, but they preach so strongly about staying married and never talk much about divorce. So it became a failure. I felt like a failure. And it took me probably a couple of years to move through that shame. You said you had to deal with shame yourself. You know, there's a lot of things that obviously when you come out on the other side, you'd say, I wish I'd done this to accelerate my healing process. Because I look at divorce at the point in which the divorce occurs. It's not like the divorce decree happens. That doesn't mean that it's over. That's when it's like the wound has happened. And now you got to heal it. And sometimes if you're following the wrong patterns, the wrong behaviors, that healing process can take very long. It could take yeah. decades. In other cases, if you're doing the right things, you can shorten that healing process and then get to the good stuff, which is the self-discovery and really living your next chapter. And I absolutely went through shame. A lot of the shame that we go through is inwardly applied. It's pressure that we're putting on ourselves. It's not outwardly applied. It's perception perception of how people of the church view you, perception of how your family members view you, maybe a, about how some of your family friends view you. And I don't want to generalize, but I think from a guy's perspective, we're all about winning. So I think divorce feels like losing. It feels like you've raised the white flag and surrendered and guys don't like to lose. So I think that adds to the shame feeling. We feel like we failed and it affects your masculinity. It's like a big jab in the stomach. And I certainly went through that and I worked through it myself. It was the answer. I gave you a long-winded answer. I wish that I had talked to a therapist and just talked through that myself. Once I started to develop friendships, which was after the divorce, it was too long after. Part of that was talking through that with some of those people too, but a lot of it was just more self-reflection and thinking about the things that were true and the things that weren't true that I was either saying to myself or that others would say. And it took a little bit longer, but yeah, I dealt with that myself internally. One thing that we did right in the beginning of the divorce is to get the counselor for the whole family. And we wrote that into the divorce decree for the co-parenting. And my boys, I have four kids, the two oldest are boys, didn't go much, but my two youngest are girls and they were 10 and 12 at the time. And they went for two years on a regular basis to her and we as parents went as well. And uh, then I started meeting her myself and I went through so much loneliness and depression initially. And uh, I told her I, I didn't have a lot of friends that I could share with. And she told me, find a few friends that you can trust and start sharing what you're going through. I didn't feel comfortable sharing about the divorce with close people because I was ashamed. Right. But uh, I flew a lot to Sweden, so I actually practiced to connect with people on the airplanes. I would start talking to the person next to me and say, are you going home? Are you going away? Uh, and just to initiate contact. And then a lot of people wanted to talk. And then I started sharing about the divorce with somebody that I'm most likely never going to meet again. And that shame after about uh, maybe six months just dissipated. And I can share about yeah. the divorce with anybody now, but if you hide that, you know, shame wants you to hide whatever you're shamed of, and that's going to keep you bound 
But when you start sharing about it, it's releases that shame. Shame is like the opposite of vulnerability, right? It's the antonym of vulnerability. I see vulnerability not as admitting your faults, but just being open and transparent about who you are, what you experienced. And a lot of men aren't vulnerable, period. Exactly. doesn't matter if they went through a divorce or not. We're not trained to be that way. We're trained to be tough and masculine and we don't show our emotions. We do compartmentalize shame, I think, a lot more than women do. Women have a tendency to have a tribe of friends all throughout their lives, even through their marriage. So they have those outlets to be vulnerable and and talk through this stuff where I think guys really keep it inside and bottle it out. I agree hundred percent. And going through the divorce, that's definitely one of the things that I learned of myself to start becoming real, becoming authentic, becoming me and finding me again, because I was definitely a different person after 20 years of marriage due to many different things than I was from the beginning. And, and also kind of like f fixing the quirks and going through to doing a reflection towards yourself. So is it anything that you've learned from the divorce yourself that you have become a different person now? Oh, sure. I think that what I did, and I think I did it as a passive aggressive tactic to my ex-wife admittedly. And I think that it was a way to, some of it was resentment that was built up. Some of it was just my way of fighting. Whenever there was conflict, I would just bottle up and not even discuss it. I refused to talk about it. And she was more of a verbal person. When we get into these discussions, whether they were heated or whether it was stressful, I just disengaged completely. And I wasn't transparent with how I felt. Never was. And coming out on the other side, I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going to do that in my dating life. I'm not going to do that with friends. That doesn't mean that I have to be an asshole. It just means that I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be direct and transparent with how I feel. And if there's a conflict, I'm going to do my best to try to address that conflict immediately or as soon as I can. I'm not perfect in that, but it's always a work in progress. If you've done that for 22 years, you're trying to change that habit. But I think being more transparent and open, particularly in dating, and that is the secret recipe, by the way. Oh, is being <laughs> transparent, being open, being deliberate about knowing who you are and what you want or what you don't want. And when you are like that on the front end, women embrace that. Yeah. I love it because then they know who you are and they can make that choice. Do I want to invest in you or not because of who you are? And we can get into that, but that was probably my biggest flaw going in. I think there's other things like I wasn't a very good listener. That's a lot of guys, but that was certainly me. It's, um, I've been working on that. Going through a divorce, if you do it right and you really self-reflect, it is an opportunity for you to look back and not always place the blame on the other side, but also but look in the mirror and say, okay, how do I create the new me that's a lot better? What are the habits that I had in my marriage that destroyed the marriage? Because it takes two to tango here. It's not always one-sided. There are exceptions to that. If someone physically abuses the other, you can't say well, that's her fault or that's his fault, right? There's certain exceptions for sure. But generally speaking, when a marriage dissolves, there's usually behavior or patterns or things that either party did to contribute to that dissolution. I recognize that and I've been working on those. Not there yet, but I'm working on them. Yeah, life is journey, I usually say. We're going to be working on it until the deathbed. And I think that's a very healthy way to look at life. It's a growth journey. I'm never going to be perfect. It's a journey. 
a lot of things that you say I can totally relate to. And I usually say divorce can be the best opportunity too for the rest of your life. Because a lot of times I felt like I was in a fog for the later half of the marriage, like a fog. Everything was so busy in life, driving kids all over the place, working, having your own company, etc. But it's kind of like a reset, like you said, or a catalyst or something, a wake-up call, this divorce. And I think that can be a hope for people to know that for so many people I talked to, this has been one of the best things that's happened to them, even for people that didn't want a divorce. It can be that the glimmer of hope to reset your life. And I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that dating advice or, uh, you know, I started dating. Get out juicy stuff. There's so many people that become lonely and rush into dating. Uh, I did it myself. The day the divorce papers are signed, pretty much, I started dating. And I dated for the wrong reason, I figured out later, because I just dated because I wanted to fill this void inside of me. I was just lonely and depressed. And if you're lonely and depressed, just trying to fill that void, you're not going to be successful dating. I dated for a year and then I realized, okay, this is not what I should be doing. I need to start looking at me. So I took two years off, stopped dating at all. I'd love to hear whatever you think about dating. I had a similar path as you did. And I think that being part of this community, I hear a lot of stories. So I, I could put a lot of generalities together. And generally speaking, men do dive into dating very quickly. In many cases, way too early before they've gone through at least some of their healing process. And I am a big advocate like you are that, like you've said, that you do need some time from the point at which you're separated or divorced to take a breath, to let the dust settle, to get into your new norm. You don't need to throw another ball that you're going to be juggling when you're trying to figure out how to juggle in the first place. And that's the first time I've used that analogy. It works great. What drives that is the need for connection. And frankly, in many cases, the need for physical connection, sex. And I think that I did the same thing. I started dating when we were separated. We talked about it, that it was okay. I didn't really have the desire to do it. At the time, I said, you know what? I want to focus on making sure the kids are okay. I want to focus on my career because it really dropped through the divorce, pre-divorce process. But I got lonely and you get on the apps and it's cocaine. It's like a drug because your phone vibrates when you get connected with someone, right? They're smart. You're like, oh my gosh, someone likes me. And you're going through all these emotions and you want validation. You want someone to say you're good looking, you're a good guy because nobody else has given it to you at the time. And so I think that drives a lot of behavior. And I got into a committed relationship while I was separated. And the relationship actually went really well, but it only lasted three months. And at the end of the, the 90 days, we broke up because I started to realize a little bit of what I wanted and what I didn't want it. And she was a younger woman and had never had kids and never been married. And here I am, I'm 47 and my youngest was 16. So two years and my kids are gone. And I woke up 90 days later and said, holy shit, I don't want kids. What am I doing here? And it had to break that up. So then I got into another probably two month relationship with someone that was not very healthy. And that kind of eroded very quickly. And this is when I figured out the secret recipe is number one is I 
realize I'm not ready, just like you did. I came to that conclusion. I'm not ready for a committed relationship. I like dating. It's fun. I want to continue dating. This is where I went a different path from you, but I don't need to focus on finding the next partner. Yeah. I just need to focus on dating casually because I enjoy people's companies. But there's a lot of people out there, a lot of women that aren't looking for that. And a lot of guys disguise through profiles and what they say to get the perception that they're looking for something serious when in fact they're not. And so what I decided during that time is I'm going to just be super open and super transparent about where I am and what I'm looking for and what I'm not looking for in my dating. I did all online dating and I traveled a lot. So I would date when I traveled and I dated a lot. I was a serial dater. I'll admit it. I dated, I'd go to LA for a four day business trip and I'd have three nights of dating three different women, but I'd match with people and you start to get to know them through the app. And I would say, Hey, first of all, a lot of people wouldn't even tell the women that they don't even live in the same city. I said, look, I'm from Oklahoma. I travel to LA on occasion for business trips. Most of my meetings are during the day. And so I'd love to have someone's company over drinks or dinner. And I'm not looking for a long distance relationship. Number one. Number two, I've been through a couple of relationships. I'm not quite ready in a committed relationship because I still need to go through my own shit and figure out what I want. But I love making new friends. And if that's something that you're open for, I'd love to spend some time with you. And I'd say probably seven out of 10 would say, no, you're not for me. I'm looking for something. This would just be a waste of my time. But the 30% were like, you know what? Now that I think about it, I'm either, I'm kind of in that same boat, trying to discover myself. They were in the same boat. And so going in with that expectation pair is the secret recipe because women love the fact that you're honest and transparent. And then they get to choose, they get to decide, do I want to invest any time with this person or not? And setting that expectation, I made a relationship now, then I look back and all of those people that I went out with, I'd say 80% I still talk to, we're connected on social media. They're all friends. Many are involved in my organization, my community. And I just felt like I did it the right way. I did it above board transparent, open. So they knew who I was and what I was looking for. And it allowed them to choose. And I think there's so much deception in dating in terms of not only the photos, but expressing what your intentions are, where you live, how old you are, how tall you are. Everybody bends the truth in a lot of that. And when it's discovered, it frustrates people to the point that they don't want to deal with it anymore. I felt like that was the secret recipe to really build friendships and navigate through dating. And honestly, and I'll shut up, but going through that dating process was part of my healing process. Yeah. Especially when I wasn't looking to latch on to the next person long-term because I wasn't ready because it enabled number one is you build self-confidence, you get practice, and then you get to know people and start to discover, wow, I'm really attracted to that. Or wow, I'm really not attracted to that in terms of what their interests are, what they do, how they, and so I felt like going through that process, once I figured out what I wanted was part of my healing process to allow me to really discover what I wanted. Yeah. It's very interesting that you say that it's, uh, we did a dating panel where we had four people talking about dating 
And it was very interesting because we came up with that. The dating can be initially just a practice to practice. You know, if you've been married for 20 years to just get out and talking to people, building friendships. And for me, that was definitely part of it. Uh, the first year when I started dating and uh, about authenticity and being real and being you is also not only healthy for you as a person to be that and not being this fake with a bunch of masks, but also it's extremely attractive out of a women's perspective, a man that can be himself, not having these masks up, pretending to be somebody he's not. And uh, also building self-confidence, like you said, to being out there and talking to people and it can also help you out of the loneliness like a lot of people are dealing with loneliness to be able to connect with the people and and also learning how to connect with people how to talk to people that initially just get to know and that is one of my passions where i teach connecting because communication and connection is very different to be able to connect with somebody you have to be vulnerable you have to be a, a deeper person than just talking about s s football and uh, surface stuff you have to go to the depth and that's how you gain these amazing friends and that's what came out of my marriage before the marriage crashed during my marriage I didn't have these awesome guy friends. I had guy friends, but it was none that I talked about deeper issues or deeper thoughts or, or difficulties. But now I have many uh, of these friends. I've roommated with two guys during the divorce or after the divorce, and they're so good friends. Like if I have an issue, I'm going through something, I just call them up. So what do you think about this? And we talk for half an hour about it. Yeah. It is so awesome. See, that's, and that's what, and the next evolution of Daniel is something that I haven't found. I've got a couple of guy friends, but not at the depth that you do. I've, I've, honestly, I have female friends that I am closer to from a friendship standpoint than probably guys, but you're so right. And you know what? Going into those type of dates that I just described where you were really, you've taken all the pressure off. You take that pressure off. You don't feel like you're on an interview and neither does the woman for that matter. Yeah. So it's a lot more laid back. And when pressure is taken off, you tend to be naturally gravitate to the real you, which is more authentic. Yeah. And so I, I've always coached people because I get a lot of people asking, how do you navigate dating? I'm like, use it as a vehicle to discover new friends. But part of that in discovering new friends, if you think about like your good friends is you know everything about them. You have to go into those dating experiences with a curiosity. To yeah. learn more about them. It isn't a platform to you for you to vomit everything out in your life and talk about how good you are, try to validate, here's why I'm a good person in spite of all the stuff that I've gone through. No, it's an opportunity to be curious about someone, to learn about what their interests are, what their passions are. And I think that if you go in with that natural curiosity and you're asking lots of questions and you're listening more than you're talking, you're going to discover so many new friendships through the process. And if one of them happens to be that real connection where it may gravitate to something more than just a friendship, then that's icing on the cake. Yeah. And that's what I learned from the airplane trips, going back and forth to Europe all the time, you know, every month for five years. And then I would ask them questions, you know, to connect with somebody. You need to be curious, just like you said. And when yeah. you're curious about them, they want to share. Yeah, you no, know, that's right. another secret recipe of, of connecting with someone is because if you're vomiting up on them, they're going to be, they don't want to talk to you. 
you know, but if right. you're really curious, you ask these questions, how did you do that? Oh, that sounds interesting. And you're curious and interested in them. You're going to build this connection with them. Now, sometimes I would talk for hours with this person next to me on the airplane. And it's like, mm -hmm. every, I said, every single time I sit down on an airplane, I ask the question within 30 seconds. That's my rule. Because the longer you wait, the more difficult it's going to be to connect with someone. Well, they're going to put their headphones on, right? And then I've had that happen many times. And then it's very clear to <laughs> sign, okay, they do not want to talk. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and that's okay. That's not for everybody, but you're right. Yeah. It's about allowing someone else to open up. And what's nice is when people feel very validated when you're asking them questions about their life, their passions, their career. And then all of a sudden they're going to want to turn it on you and ask about, so it does come back, but going into the dating, even if you are intentional, if you're looking for your plus one and you're ready, still go in with that, uh, take the pressure off. Yeah. Go in. This is going to be a potential friend. If you're going to, to have a drink or dinner or something with them anyway, you like them for some reason outside of looks, I would think. Yeah. You've connected it some way. Maybe you FaceTime, you've texted. And so you already kind of like him. There's already that him or her. There's a little bit of a foundation that's there. And so now deepen it and be curious, ask questions, get to know them better. And I think if people went in, whether they're intentional or non-intentional, they're dating with just the, the premise that I'm going to find a new friend, it would take all of the disenfranchisement that everybody gets and all the negativity out of the process, for sure. A lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it. Yeah. And then when you're looking for friends, not romantic friends, uh, you know, any friend, I think uh, a few of the recipes there, now when we're talking about connection, is also to be vulnerable and sharing about your difficulties. I had a friend that I met in the Bible study about a year and a half ago, and we just said, let's do lunch. And then in the lunch, he shared about him dealing with extreme anxiety. And it just came out of the blue. I had no idea. And then I shared my divorce. Yeah. And then our relationship just went like this. And now we're best friends. Just by opening the door by, by my inner world. And then that is so powerful when you as a man can share things like that with somebody else. Because a lot of people are not yes. comfortable doing that. And it opens the door and says, I'm available to this. And what you did is, which I think is key, is you put yourself in a setting to be vulnerable. Hey, let's go have a cup of coffee. You're not going to do that over happy hour and drinks. Let's go have yeah. a cup of coffee. Let's go have lunch. Let's go have dinner or breakfast together. And spending that one-on-one -on -one time, if you're in a group setting, people are going to be less vulnerable. Whereas if you're one-on-one -on -one with people, you know, the biggest thing that I learned about cultivating friendships is intentionality. And you have to be intentional about the amount of time that you're investing in someone. It's no different from a romantic relationship. If you're not investing in that person, then that investment's going to erode over time. That relationship will erode. It's no different from if I used to stop exercising, your muscles are going to become flaccid. Well, if you're not investing in friends, it's the same thing. You're, you're going to just drift. They're busy, you're busy. And so one of the things that I did last year was with this friend group that I cultivated is we did stuff at least weekly, if not two, three, four times weekly, because I had a lot of spare time with COVID and not dating because of COVID and not traveling. And we were very intentional about spending time with each other. And I think that is a great recipe for success in a relationship, whether it's a, just a friendly or a romantic relationship. 
Yeah, that is so true. Yeah, I'd love for you to share a little bit more about the organization and uh, what it is for. Well, I think that, uh, I mean, first of all, it's my passion project now. We're now nine months into this community that we've built and probably more passionate than I was nine months ago, just by the feedback that we get about what we're creating. And really the genesis of it was the summer of last year, I reflected back. I wasn't traveling because of COVID. I wasn't dating. I'd been in a little fling with someone and she broke it off with me. And I kind of got my, my, uh, pride hurt a little bit. And I started to kind of think through, okay, what, what have I accomplished since my divorce? And, you know, it's like, I really don't have a lot of really, I don't have a lot of friends locally, you know, that really close friends. And I was like, I need to really focus on that. You know, I need to stop dating. It's been fun, but I need to really focus on friends. And there was a, a guy that worked with me that had just recently got through his divorce he's in his early fifties and I'm 47 and we started hanging out. We became like you, when we had those settings, we became very vulnerable about our divorces and the emotions that we were going through. And we started having cookouts at his house. He had the best bachelor pad pair. This thing was unbelievable. It was beautiful. He had a big outdoor area and he loved to grill. And we said, well, why don't we just start having people over once a week? like a Thursday night cookout. He was a much more social person than I had. So he had a pretty big circle. So he invited most of his single or divorced friends. I invited a couple and we had about 10 people there the first time. And it was just a cookout. It wasn't a hookup meeting. It wasn't a get a phone number for a date. It was just, let's all bring food and let's drink and listen to music and talk. Had so much fun. Did it the next week. Those 10 people invited 10 people. Pretty soon, I remember my ex-wife calling me in the middle of the summer and she goes, what are these divorce parties that you're having? And I was like, divorce? I was like, we don't really call them divorce parties, but it was all divorced people at the same stage of life. And I cultivated this friendship group with four women and then this guy and myself. We became just like this tight band. We were all at the same stage of life in our 40s, early 50s, all divorced deal with co-parenting, dating, or the whole nine yards. And you can really relate with someone that's gone through the same shit that you have. And people used to make fun of us because we were always together. And they're like, you guys are like the friends of Tulsa, or you're the friends of the 40 somethings. And so we were like, why don't we create an Instagram account of all of us and make fun and chronicle our lives. So it was really meant to be something that was more fun. Some of the women are like, maybe we'll get the attention of Hollywood and they'll come do a reality show for us. You know, we laughed at that. And so we created this account called Divorce Over 40, an Instagram account. And here I am, I'm, I'm a little bit OCD, not too much, but a little bit. I was like, okay, we got to put some organization to this. We need to meet. And so we met over a, a dinner. We said, okay, what do we want to do with this page? And we said, okay, well, why don't we all tell our divorce story or just a piece of it initially instead of let's get deep. And we all were very vulnerable and open in the first um, story that we provided and it blew everybody away. We got so many comments from our friends and family and about how much they appreciated the vulnerability and the honesty and the transparency. And so many people said, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that someone else was going through the emotions and the same experience that I was. And it was like this light bulb went off and said, oh my gosh, 
this could have meaning to it. It doesn't just have to be about making fun or being social. We could actually help support divorced men and women. And that's when it started. We started to add content from experts, sex therapists, divorce coaches, mediators, and we all regularly blogged about our life. And the community then, as it grew, people wanted to come hang out with us. They were like, can I come Thursday? When can I come to the next party? People we didn't know. And we were like, I'm not sure we want a bunch of strangers at a house. And so we decided to set up a happy hour. We were like, let's do a happy hour at a public setting and we'll just see if anybody shows up. Well, 15 people showed up. And two weeks later, 25 people showed up. Then two weeks later, 50 people showed up. And now we're consistently having near 100 people. Uh, We do it once a month. We have a happy hour. We have 100 divorced men and women that show up to these events. And again, the whole premise of it, Pair, is we're not a dating site. We're not coming with the intentionality to find or prospect men or women. We're here because we're all divorced. We're all in the same boat. We want, and you lose your friends in your divorce, a lot of them. And it's a way to cultivate new friendships with people that understand what you went through. And you fast forward to today and we've got, our community is probably 10,000 strong. It's literally across the world. We have people in Russia and Africa and United Kingdom and Canada and Australia that are involved. We now have people just like us in different cities that are leading. We have 72 of them. We call them city ambassadors that they're leading efforts in their city to replicate the community that we're building in Tulsa. And our vision is that we're inspiring hope. We're showing that being divorced doesn't mean that you're a loser, that you can actually have fun and be social, that we've created a way to cultivate friendships of like-minded people. And it's just been an incredible experience. I mean, like I said, it's nothing that we expected and now it's our passions. It's been a great ride. That's awesome. Do you have one in Dallas? We do. Yes. You need to be involved. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the, the woman that leads it is incredible. She, we had a big party last weekend in Tulsa. We called it the Spring Fling. And we had 325 people. I saw that. Think of it like the prom for the adults. Everybody dressed up. We had live music. We had food, drink. And we had probably maybe 50 to 75 people from out of town that came in. For the yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> but you know what? People loved it because they're like, I'm coming to a party. I don't have to worry about predators. Yeah. You know, men looking for hookups, men looking for dates. Uh, but, but here's what I'll tell you we're not intentional about dating. We don't want you to come for that reason, but it does create an organic way to meet people of the opposite sex. And I met the girl that I'm dating from one of the parties, and I wasn't looking, neither was she. But we had a connection and we started dating after that. And we've been together for nine months. And so I think that it does create an alternative to the dating apps where, but you have to go in with the premise that I just am trying to create my tribe and my group of friends and see where it goes. Yeah. It can also help people get out of the loneliness and depression by meeting other people and connecting with other people, getting friends, et cetera. I think that's an amazing thing that you're doing. And I will put in the description below a link to the group and your information so listeners can connect. And uh, that's awesome. We're going to round off the podcast here. We had a, a fabulous time together. And I usually ask the last question here. 
if you have a guy listening to the podcast right now that have uh, just initiated the divorce, he's in a quite lonely, depressed state and uh, struggling, what would your advice be? The first steps, what to do? I think the first thing that there's so many things that I could say. The first thing that I would have done that I would recommend is find your tribe. Find your circle of friends. It could be one, it could be two, it could be three. It could be female or male. Dust off the old friends that you haven't talked to in a long time or expand your circle of new friends that maybe a coworker, maybe someone at your church, maybe someone that they don't have to be divorced. They don't have to, they could be married, but be intentional. It's hard to be intentional when you're depressed and when you're lethargic and you're sad about yourself. But if you could just spend, just put a harness, a lot of energy into finding a little circle of friends that you can invest a lot of your time in, it'll eliminate a lot of that loneliness feeling. It'll make you feel validated and wanted. It's a much better alternative to dating the wrong way and going through and being toxic with the relationships that you date. I mean, I wish I had the group that I had last year, which was 18 months after my divorce. I wish I had that group month one after my divorce. It would have accelerated my healing. It had given me a new perspective on life and I'd have been a little bit further ahead than where I am today. So find your tribe would be my best advice that I could give. That is awesome. Such a good ending on the podcast. Uh, you listeners, it's a pleasure having you all here listening on a regular basis. It's an honor to be able to be here and, and just uh, bringing hope to you all. I just want to thank you, Daniel, for taking your time, sharing your story. And I know a lot of listeners are just going to hear your story and be encouraged and taking steps. It can be very difficult in a divorce. I usually say it's like sitting in a rowboat in the middle of the ocean, rowing and not feeling that you're making progress. But taking steps will make you get progress. And it's like uh, Daniel said, build a tribe, start reaching out. It's definitely one of the most important things to do. So. Thank you again, Daniel, for, for being on the podcast, being with us today. And thank you for all you do, because you're making a big impact for divorced men and women that, you know, through the content that you push. So I really appreciate that. And I'm glad I met you on Clubhouse of all places. Yeah, that's awesome.